The lecture you are about to hear will introduce you to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum's latest exhibition, Heaven on Earth, featuring the work of Fra Angelico, a Dominican friar in Renaissance Florence whose innovations transformed the history of Western art. In 1899, Isabella Stewart Gardner acquired the first Fra Angelico painting in America, and with this new exhibition, our speaker this evening, Nathaniel Silver, has reunited that picture the Dormition and Assumption of the Virgin, for the first time in more than a century with its three sister reliquaries from the Museo di San Marco. Tonight, he will illuminate his talk with a behind-the-scenes look at the preparation for the exhibition, an exploration of the painter's approaches to sacred tales, and with the fascinating story of how Mrs. Gardner first brought the Dormition and Assumption to Boston, a landmark in the history of American art collecting. Prior to Heaven on Earth, Nathaniel Silver co-organized Ornament and Illusion, Carlo Crivelli of Venice, and was also the curator of Beyond Words, Italian Renaissance Books, which won the Outstanding Exhibition Award from the Association of Art Museum Curators. He also curated Piero della Francesca in America at the Frick Collection in New York. Please join me in welcoming Nat Silver to the Boston Avenue. Thank you so much, Lizzie, for that warm introduction. And thank you to the Blacks for endowing the lecture and for that wonderful connection to Isabella Stewart Gardner. Um, you've touched on several points of connection with Fra Angelico tonight between Fiesole and color and the assumption, and I think you'll notice that a few of those uh, come out in the lecture. Not too far away from this room, <clears throat> just across town and off the Fenway, hangs a little painting by Fra Angelico. Some of you may be familiar with the Gardner Museum's assumption and dormition of the Virgin Mary, but have you ever seen it up close? Cerulean blues, cranberry reds, and pristine whites mingle with the sparkle of gold. Its glimmering surface suffuses the whole composition standing in for the sky. Surrounding the figures and distinguishing each one with a different pattern. Here a sunburst, there a floral motif, and even a few letters. This one here, and I'll point to it, so I have to try to do this with the microphone and this in hand. This one looks a little bit like the letter A. Perhaps shorthand for the Italian word assunta, that is the virgin who is assumed into heaven and the protagonist of our painting. Another painting currently on loan to the gardener from the Galleria degli Uffizi reveals a similar strategy. This altarpiece, this quite large altarpiece you can see from uh, the two art handlers who are removing it here from its crate, was made for the church attached to Santa Maria Nuova, the largest hospital in Florence. It too features the Virgin Mary in heaven at the center of the composition. The pair of angels dancing in a circle behind her wear robes that signal her importance with decorations of an equal specificity. Look carefully and you can single out the letters S on the angel in green, that is the, the one in front, and M on the one in red behind her, probably alluding to the Italian name for the Virgin Mary, so Santa Maria, the two first letters. 
While the Uffizi altarpiece focuses on the Virgin already in heaven, the gardener for Angelico depicts an image of her death below, then her ascent skyward amidst a chorus of angels. Today, this painting will serve as our touchstone, the work to which we'll return for the next 40 minutes or so. My lecture is divided into three parts. The first takes a closer look at Fra Angelico's use of color, looking at the gardener's work as a point of departure. The second returns us to the Renaissance to find out who this painter was and what made him so important in his own time, paying special attention to works included in the gardener's current exhibition. The third and concluding part to this talk considers Fra Angelico's critical fortunes through the prism of the Assumption and Dormition of the Virgin, returning us from 15th century Florence to Gilded Age Boston. And I hope you enjoy the journey. Each angel in the Gardner painting is distinguished by the iridescent color of its robe, all of which remain in remarkable condition. <clears throat> This deep sea green is probably derived from the mineral malachite, ground into a rough powder and whose tiny shards invest the surface with a rough sandpaper-like texture. You can see in the raking light of this photo, actually the texture of the grains of the malachite which stick up here in the paint. Gold, too, attracts our attention, deployed with the variety and luminosity typically reserved for paint. The colors and textures of Fra Angelico's gold also offers a new dimension to heaven. Here in the wings, he added striations with a sharp tool and then toned them in with oil glazes. So you can see, like here in this angel's wing, he's actually using a sharp tool to incise lines into the wing and then adding glazes across the surface. Now oxidized, they originally lent gold a depth and hue. In this place, probably the color red or green, we're not quite sure, suggestive of layers of feathers, like a bird's wing. Like the Virgin's mantle, all of their cloaks bear distinct markings, singling out each angel as an individual and distinguishing one from the next. Delicately applied, they glisten with reflected light and contrast with the warmer tone and matte patina of the gold ground beyond. So the contrast is between these little decorations and then the actual background of gold here, which have two different patinas. The best place to see the difference actually is here where Fra Angelico applied rays of light or gold over the gold background. This staggeringly subtle gold on gold would have caught the candlelight in a church, bringing the Virgin Mary's ascent to life by the flickers of the flame. So you can see very clearly here the two different layers of gold which he's applied. And actually, you can see the A very well here, too, on her robe. Like the different colors of gold that are nearly impossible to discern with the naked eye, Fra Angelico relied on other practically invisible hues to achieve visual effects of unprecedented subtlety. Gestures are crucial to telling any story, and his nearly cobweb-thin outlines help to enhance their visibility here. I'm talking about the thin red line that articulates the Virgin's ten fingers, and you can see it pretty clearly on her thumb here and around the rest of the fingers. This is a technique that he borrowed from manuscript illuminators, those most precise of all painters who used it to enhance the visibility of their tiny protagonists for the reader of the text and ensure the clarity of each miniature narrative rendered on parchment or paper. 
For Angelico's painting on wood, and this, this is a painting on a wood panel, essentially is the size of a large manuscript and was also intended for a limited audience. The density and the density of his composition renders it a visual challenge for any viewer trying to decipher the story from more than a few feet away. These red outlines, which disappear at a distance of any more than 12 inches or so, render legible the flesh tones, making evident any individual's action and age. Here you can see it best in the crow's feet of John the Evangelist's face. So you see them here, and you can also see them in the fingers of his hands. Such precise effects were hardly reserved for one color alone. Fra Angelico simulated the impression of depth <clears throat> on top of this wall with three simple lines of black paint. Up close, you can see how he simply dragged this line across the top of the wall along an already incised surface. The ragged end, usually covered by the frame, offers the sole clue of this technique, which is otherwise nearly invisible. So what I'm talking about here are the lines of dark pigment across the top, here, here, and here. And you can just see the tail end of this one. And it's just this very simple technique which gives the top of the wall the impression of having a stone-cut cornice. So from a distance, it actually resolves as shadow crowning this simple wall with an elegantly cut stone cornice. And you can see it very clearly here across the top. Fra Angelico's sensitivity to color and texture extends from his smallest paintings like this one at the Gardener to his largest altarpieces and frescoes. Unlike a bright tempera palette of the kind we've been looking at, fresco tends to deliver more muted effects. And this isn't just because of the poor quality of this photograph. It's fairly typical for tempera, for, excuse me, for fresco. This made it the perfect choice for a convent like this one at San Marco, where possessions were forbidden and poverty was celebrated as a virtue. These rainbow colors are far from impoverished, but their visual language contrasts starkly with the radiant colors of heaven in his other paintings. Most notably, they lack his luxuriant use of gold. Instead, Fra Angelico expertly simulated its effects in paint, and you can see that well here in the youngest Magus, who carries a gift to Christ and the Virgin. I'm hardly the first person to pick up on Fra Angelico's sensitivities to color. Throughout the 20th century, American artists found new inspiration in his resplendent hues and vibrant tones. In 1950, at the height of his career, Mark Rothko visited Europe for the first time since his childhood. The consummate American artist, he had always stood behind the idea that painters in this country, quote, and this, these are his words, wiped the slate clean, unquote, by marking a departure with their older master predecessors in Europe. Yet he could not resist the seductive images and lavish colors of Fra Angelico's finest paintings. Robert Motherwell reported that Rothko loved the Renaissance artist's bright temperas and esteemed the San Marco frescoes above all others as unparalleled expressions of feeling. He was not the only one. New England's own Saul LeWitt, his earliest wall drawings in black and white, claimed that it was Fra Angelico who eventually converted him to color. So who was this remarkable painter? Writing about 13 years after Fra Angelico's death in 1455, a contemporary, another Dominican named Domenico Corella, praised the skills of this recently deceased confrere. Corella celebrated, quote, the angelic painter, previously called Giovanni, as a name no less than Giotto or Cimabue, unquote. His name was Guido di Pietro at birth, 
and upon admission as a friar to the Dominican order, Fra Giovanni or Friar John. But it was Angelico that stuck. This epithet invoked the legendary Dominican St. Thomas Aquinas, whose own nickname, the Angelic Doctor, or the Doctor Angelicus, recognized his titanic intellectual contributions to the Christian church. The parallel not only enhanced the painter's fame by association, but also specifically framed the accomplishments of Fra Angelico as astute and legendary, a reputation that had already begun to spread both within and beyond the confines of his order through his exceptional art. The Dominicans in Florence were the making of Fra Angelico in more ways than one. Their patronage networks fueled his material success, and their ideas helped shape the pic painter's pictorial repertoire. By the time, see here we are back in Fiesole, um, by the time he joined the order between 1419 and 1422, he was already a professional painter. He chose this newly established reform or observant branch, which had recently settled in Fiesole, and his brother Benedetto signed up too, eventually heading the scriptorium at the same church. It was the ideal arrangement for collaborating on illuminated manuscripts, like San Marcos, but this is a later example from San Marcos, large and lavishly painted choir books. There is no reason to doubt that Fra Angelico was committed to his faith and the ideals of the order, which he served faithfully as an officer later in life. But the fact that he had already chosen a painting career before taking his vows suggests that his decision also reflected professional considerations. The observant order recruited mainly from other Dominican houses, and the majority who joined at San Domenico were already friars elsewhere. Yet the painter and his brother were the only lay initiates to the Fiesole house recorded in its first 30 years. The artist probably chose that little church you've just seen over the larger, richer, and conventual or regular house at Santa Maria Novella, at least in part for practical reasons. Professions were practiced at both convents, but his manual labor as a painter limited his, his potential for advancement here at Santa Maria Novella, where he could only have become a lay brother or a conversus. No such regulations existed at San Domenico, where he became a friar and an ordained priest and was accorded the full privileges of the order, including eligibility for its higher offices. However Angelico came to his decision, it proved auspicious. The Dominicans in Florence, both well-established traditionalists and rapidly expanding reformers, not only guaranteed a steady stream of work, but also offered access to enlightened clients like the Florentine families Medici, Strozzi, Agli, Gadi, and as well as two consecutive popes, members of their retinues, and several Dominican theologians. Moreover, his status as a friar enabled him to operate outside of the professional guild system, whose regulations perpetuated tradition rather than fueling innovation. Membership as a friar fostered the painter's intellectual development at a formative moment. At its foundation, the Dominican order began as a student movement, attracting recruits from the major universities of Paris and Bologna, where it appealed to young clerics who sought to apply their vast learning to metaphysical rather than social or scientific ends. Reading was an act of prayer for the Dominicans, and its novices memorized a vast literature, eventually putting it to use as friars in their carefully composed sermons. 
Nicknamed the Dogs of the Lord, they fiercely defended the church from heresy, convincing the masses with their words, just as Fra Angelico persuaded with his pictures. And I've just put this up here as an explanation. This is, so Dominicani was often broken down into two words in contemporary texts. So um, in Latin, domine and canes, so uh, Dogs of the Lord. And this allegory was also extended into contemporary paintings. And you can see here um, the black and white dogs that the Dominicans here in the black and white habits are shepherding in this direction. His education likely began at Santa Maria Novella, which had one of the finest schools in Tuscany and was the alma mater of many founding friars of the observance. Yet even after the nearby house of San Domenico officially separated from Santa Maria Novella in 1419, the two foundations, located just a few miles away from each other, remained closely linked. Fra Angelico painted the high altarpiece for San Domenico shortly after he arrived. And I have to explain to you that although the exterior of San Domenico survives and you can visit it today, the interior as it was in the 15th century does not resemble what it, what it once did. So this is a reconstruction to suggest what it looked like in his time. And you see here the high altar of the church where he painted the high altarpiece. And then it's divided by this wall in the center. And that was the area reserved for the Dominicans and the area where the laity was allowed to visit, where the, the rest of the parish was allowed. And there on that wall, this rude screen, were two other altarpieces that Fra Angelico also painted. The base of the high altarpiece, and that's what you're looking at a detail of here, <clears throat> includes blessed individuals associated with the larger church downtown with Santa Maria Novella. Its predella, this base of the altarpiece as a whole, envisions the Dominican sacred ge genealogy from Christ to the present, radiating outward. So you can see Christ here in the center, surrounded by angels, and then different ranks of saints. And finally, with the Dominican blessed here on either side. This represented the shared heritage of the Florentine houses, both conventual and observant, both venerable and recently complete. Fra Angelico went on to produce some, and I couldn't help a shot of our own exhibition here while I'm talking about Fra Angelico, went on to produce some of the most original erudite and complex images in Italy, and the paintings gathered in our exhibition at the Gardener offer a glimpse of his achievements. He championed novelty, perhaps an obvious ideal today, but at the time the exception rather than the norm. Fra Angelico reconsidered existing representational formulas, breathing new life into canonical subjects, executed not only in fresco, but also on these smaller scale wood supports like the ones you see in the show. His works stand at the cutting edge of artistic developments in early Quattrocento Florence. We can follow the first decade of his progress through a series of commissions for the two major Dominican churches in the city, from the altarpieces for his own mother house in Fiesole on my left, to the jewel-like set of reliquaries for their downtown headquarters, which are at the core of the Boston exhibition. Along the way, we'll examine some of his pictorial innovations, oftentimes examples so obvious that we have to remind ourselves to credit him with their invention. In Fiesole, beyond the high altar precinct at San Domenico, he painted two more monumental altarpieces. Here, the artist first introduced a new composition for the Annunciation, that most popular of Renaissance subjects, in a painting for an altar located on the rood screen around 1427. So these are the two altars on the rood screen. And here on the left, you have the Annunciation, and that painting is today in the Prado in Madrid. And here on the right, you have the Coronation of the Virgin, which is today in the Louvre. For the first time in a Florentine altarpiece, 
Fra Angelico united the Annunciation with the expulsion of Adam and Eve, bringing together man's fall with the means of his redemption. So here you see the Annunciation and then the expulsion here from the Garden of Eden. Angelico treated the composition of this square format panel like a window onto a sacred world. It invested this Annunciation with proportion and measurability, encouraging the viewer to make connections to the story by forging comparisons with his or her actual surroundings. Angelico further developed the potential for comparison by updating the setting of the Annunciation, introducing elements from the local architecture by Brunelleschi. So this is a, an example of some of the new architecture that Brunelleschi had brought to the city. While most local altarpieces of the Annunciation sought to reproduce quite an old composition um, of a miracle-working fresco in the church of Santissima Annunziata in Florence, Fra Angelico modernized that painting's outdated architecture, substituting for Gothic arches a Renaissance arcade, evocative of Brunelleschi's Innocenti hospital facade, and transforming the Virgin's bedroom into a small temple. Like many of Angelico's paintings, all of the details here are meaningful. The Virgin's prayer book, lying open in her lap, spine bent back across her knee, signals her surprise at Gabriel's arrival as attested in the Gospel of Luke. The marble pavement, inscribed with iridescent patterns, demarcates this space as a sacred precinct. The impression of its colors in flux heightens the viewer's sense of imminent change, as if the environment itself were responding to the archangel's arrival. The many references to Mary, including the Garden of Eden, her chamber, and the bird that graces it, gloss multiple sources, tailoring the moral and devotional significance of the image to its congregation, much in the way that a Dominican preacher would have crafted a successful sermon. Clothes, too, helped the painter to shape the meaning of his altarpiece. Angelico provided Adam and Eve with the kind of skin garments made for them by God when he banished the pair from Eden. Angelico's composition, departing from both earlier and contemporary Florentine works depicting the couple nude, signals the shame that led to the fall, foreshadowing Mary as the new Eve and highlighting her role in Christ's redemption of man. But it also suggests careful thought to the practical consideration of dressing the biblical duo. Animal skin garments were climate appropriate for a pair destined for a life in the wilderness, and also recall contemporary representations of hermit's garb, like that of St. John the Baptist, who reputedly wore the clothes of, a cam of camel hair. Indeed, Fra Angelico's dressing of Adam and Eve resonates with the theorist Alberti's later advice to clothe figures in the manner befitting their characters. When it came to the next altarpiece, the Coronation of the Virgin, painted around 1429 for the same church, so now we're looking at this one here, Fra Angelico invented an entirely new iconography, or an entirely new format for the image. Departing from existing models that envisioned the scene horizontally around Christ and the Virgin enthroned in heaven with saints at either side, like this image, and th this is by uh, Giotto, but there are many painters who are doing this right up until Fra Angelico. Fra Angelico instead positioned the Savior and his mother at the top of a stairway, stacked with prophets, apostles, and other saints. This novel vertical arrangement, the choice of saints and their disposition reflect the priorities of an order preoccupied with the mental images stimulated by prayer and the desire to convey them effectively to the congregation. Fra Angelico not only reshaped the visual formulas of popular altarpiece subjects to invest them with new meaning, but also carefully considered 
the viewer's collaboration. For example, he unified the horizons of each scene of the predella. So the predella is the base of the altarpiece. Um, just go back here. You see it's along the bottom here. Would have appeared just above the altar. This is a close-up view of one of the several scenes um, in that predella. He unified the horizons of each scene of the predella, aligning them not parallel to the ground, as you would expect, but on a diagonal. And so you can just about barely see this here. So I put in the parallel line so you can see that the beams slope slightly down to the right. Um, and you'll have to trust me, but the rest of the scenes work in the same way. This reveals the painter's effort to engage a viewer walking up or proceeding up the nave by taking into account the original location of the altarpiece on the exterior right side of the choir screen and adapting the painted episodes to its oblique sightline. So I know that sounds a little bit strange, but he's actually taking into account a viewer walking up the middle and aligning the scenes just slightly off so that it makes sense when you're looking at them from the center here rather than off to the right. This work is the first example of a predella like this that manipulates the horizon to reflect the viewer's perspective. And Fra Angelico redeployed the same strategy in another for an altarpiece in Cortona, suggesting its great success with the Dominican order. Along with the Annunciation, he repeatedly returned to another Marian subject, the Dormition. So according to legend, Mary didn't actually die, um, but she fell into a deep sleep and was assumed into heaven. At least five versions of this episode survive. Two examples in the exhibition, which you see here, a predella from Philadelphia, which is at the top, and the Gardner Reliquary from around 1433 or 34, reconceive the traditional modes of telling this story, and each depicts a slightly different moment. The Philadelphia panel imagines the virgin burial, which took place in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And you can actually see the, the valley coming down on either side here. The Gardner painting, on the other hand, envisions her funeral, preceding the transport of her body to its resting place. Both works introduce weight as a new narrative device. In the former, Angelico elaborates on the struggle of several old men to lift her dead body, while in the latter, he focuses on their necessary planning to execute this task. So each work invites the beholder, the viewer, to empathize with the action by tailoring the attitudes of the mourners to their activity. If we look carefully at the Philadelphia panel, we can see that the virgin's body strains against the thin striped shroud suspended between five figures. Two mourners behind the virgin gaze solemnly downward. With the shroud wrapped tightly around both hands, those at either end bend under her weight and keep their eyes on the corpse's balance, one crouching as if to ensure that it does not roll off and into the sarcophagus. So that's this one here. A final figure with his back to the viewer bends from the hips to support the near side. The painter invests this weighty subject with a worldly plausibility that's also shared by the Gardner painting. Perhaps inspired by choir books showing the apostles moving in a procession with the beer, Fra Angelico takes the act of lifting as a point of departure for the Gardner reliquary. So to go through it one by one with the different figures, you see Paul here in pink leading the operation. Having promised to carry the beer, the funeral beer, with Peter, he begins to lift as the latter in blue and yellow raises his hymnal and prepares to intone the blessing. So you can see Peter here on the left who's raised his hymnal um, and looking down at it, uh, and he, he's leading this funeral service.
Grasping the pole with his left hand, Paul gestures to a bearded, balding disciple to take up position at the opposite end of the beer. Another pair ready themselves at the remaining corners. The nearest grasps the pole ends with both hands, plants his feet, and bends to lift a heavy load. Weight emerges as a novel element in each painting, both the Philadelphia and the Gardner paintings, its force evident on all the individuals engaged in the act of lifting, dramatizing the narrative with a naturalistic device that engages the viewer's intellect. In Fra Angelico's paintings, the weight of Mary's body also imparts new meaning. Like the Philadelphia panel, this too combines moments from her funeral and assumption, soliciting a comparison between her heaviness on earth and her lightness in heaven. The contrast underscores the Virgin's special status as immaculate, a gloss that may have in, in, appealed to informed viewers like the learned Dominicans at Santa Maria Novella to whom this painting belonged. According to one source, she was assumed integrally in soul and body, and Fra Angelico's painting, <clears throat> The Difficulties of Carrying a Corpse, encourages a thoughtful worshiper to contemplate the miracle of her bodily assumption through this worldly conceit. Fra Angelico envisioned the imminent departure of the Virgin's funeral procession and indicated its destination with the same spare precision that characterized the foreground setting. Excuse me, one step ahead there. Mountains rise beyond the wall at either edge of the painting, so you can see them here and here, and that, that somewhere where they have to go, they're not there yet. This is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. According to the Golden Legend, Christ tells his disciples that they'll find the Virgin Mary's tomb there. The three small trees signal the valley's distance from the foreground, a distinction emphasized by the overlapping palm leaf that appears as big as the canopy of the trees behind it. Its species is less evident than the other two at the left, these two, which are clearly cypresses, symbols of death. One possible identification for the unknown tree is a cedar of Lebanon, that's this one here, which was assumed, <clears throat> excuse me, which was associated with the Virgin's assumption into heaven. John's palm leaf in front of it, the sole pictorial element that extends above the wall, emblematizes the transition. It points up to paradise, its origin, and to the Virgin's future home in heaven. The top of the composition is equally as innovative as the bottom. High above, the Virgin soars aloft, reaching out her hands toward the waiting embrace of Christ. Twenty-one angels surround her, celebrating with music and dance. Encouraged by the claps and gestures of, of this quartet here below, the central rank of angels clasps hands and circles around her in a manner of contemporary performances enacted on feast days. In this painting, the rotations actually propel the Virgin upwards and leave her fur-lined mantle and lace veils dancing in the whirlwind. And you can see, just about see there, that kind of what this celestial disturbance does. It kind of moves her garments from side to side. Fra Angelico captures the angelic jubilation and dazzling spectacle of light described in contemporary sources, and I, I quote from one here. Mary was assumed amidst rejoicing, archangels jubilating, thrones exalting, dominations psalming, principalities harmonizing, powers leering, cherubim and seraphim hymning. So these are all different ranks of angels which he takes care to pick out in his painting. And one of my favorite details, then this is an enormously enlarged detail of one of the cypress trees. The painter took great care to depict the disruption of the tiny branches, and you see it here, from as a result of that, that wind, that movement of air in the center of the composition, which is forcing the Virgin upwards. 
The assumption seen reveals Fra Angelico's ability to transform existing tradition, in this case looking to the city of Siena for inspiration. Sienese paintings of the same subject far outnumber their Florentine counterparts, and Fra Angelico's concentric circles of angels recall in a generic way contemporary examples by Sienese artists, many of which were based on venerable local precedents. Unlike those, however, his dancing angels, so the ones here in the center, don't simply herald the arrival of the Virgin, but actually serve as the very means of her ascent, producing a kind of divine propulsion that propels her upwards. Frangelico pioneered new innovations, including the standing figure of the Virgin in scenes of the Assumption. In Florence and Siena, contemporary representations of the scene typically feature an enthroned figure, for example, in the doorway to the Florence Cathedral, known as the Porta della Mandula. It's a little um, blurry, but you can see that the Virgin here is, is definitely seated. She's not standing. As one scholar observed, he also introduced her raised arms, <clears throat> a pose typically reserved for the ascension of Christ into heaven. In the gardener's painting, however, Angelico's virgin echoes Christ, investing her assumption with the authority of his ascension. It also endows the assumption with the, excuse me, it also endows the assumption with a sense of imminent reunion between mother and son as they reach out to each other with outstretched hands, signaling her welcome into heaven. Major painters across Italy adopted Fra Angelico's new formula, including Titian, whose celebrated altarpiece at the Frari in Venice bears a noticeable debt to his Florentine predecessor. Features of this composition also register a specificity to a Dominican audience, so the, the friars who would have prayed in front of these paintings. Blue cherubim herald the appearance of Christ in heaven. They're the angels that are most clearly linked with the order's founder, Dominic whereas the Franciscans were associated with the red seraphim. The followers of Dominic adopted cherubimic blue as their team color. Christ is clothed in the same Dominican hue, as are the majority of the angels, so it's tempting to speculate that this meaningful choice also extends to John the Evangelist. In every other extant version of the Assumption, Frangelico dresses him in red and blue, and so you can see two examples here. However, it's easy to wonder if we're looking in the Gardner painting, and that's the detail here at the right, as a portrait of the donor of this painting, also whose name was Giovanni, a Dominican friar and the sacristan of the church at Santa Maria Novella. Let's stick with this painting now to find out a little bit more about its origins. Today, an icon of the Gardner's collection, Fra Angelico created this work between 1424 and 1434. It was the third, or possibly the last, of a set of four reliquaries, Yes, reliquaries, or containers for holy relics. The rest are kept in the Museo di San Marco and reunited in the Gardner's exhibition for the first time, as Lizzie mentioned at the beginning. Together, they depict six Marian subjects, um, or several narratives in order, including the Annunciation and the Adoration of the Magi, so that's what you see here, um, the Virgin's Dormition and her Assumption into Heaven, the coronation of the Virgin, and finally, uh, the Madonna of the Star, or an image of the Virgin as Immaculata, or the Immaculate One, who conceived Christ without the stain of sin. Together, they celebrate the dedication of this church and the city of Florence itself to the Virgin Mary, glorifying the saint's relics contained within by association and allowing her celebration on her major feast days. The identity of those saints actually still remains a mystery. That is the identity of the saints whose relics were contained in each of the reliquaries. 
My thought is that they enclosed remains of the individuals depicted on their bases, and you can see that three of them still have the bases that survive. And here's an enlargement of one of them from the Adoration of the Magi and the Assumption. So if I'm correct, then this reliquary would have included uh, the tiny relics of Catherine of Siena, Apollonia, St. Lucy, St. Mary Magdalene, Catherine of Alexandria, Cecilia, Agnes, Dorothy, and Ursula. The overwhelmingly female lineup suggests that this reliquary may have even been paid for by a female donor. The reliquaries were probably kept in a cupboard and taken out only on holidays, one possible explanation for why the Gardner Museum's painting remains in such staggeringly good condition. Each one was removed, placed on the altar, and shown to the friars, as well as possibly the lay congregation, only on major Marian feast days. So these days corresponded to the subjects of the paintings. So the first reliquary would have been brought out on the 25th of March, uh, which is the day of the Annunciation, and that marked the start of the Florentine New Year. It might also have been brought out on, on Epiphany, uh, so January 6th, marking the Adoration of the Magi. The Gardner's reliquary, of course, must have been displayed on Assumption Day, so that's August 15th. Now, the coronation of the Virgin, there wasn't a feast day of the coronation, but that might have also been celebrated on the day of the uh, Assumption of the Virgin, so again, August 15th, and as well as possibly All Saints Day, because there are so many saints in it, so possibly on the 1st of November. And then the final reliquary would have been brought out on the day of the Immaculate Conception, so on the 8th of December, so all separately and all individually, never all at the same time. All of these festivals were pivotal dates in the city's calendar, as well as major holidays in the Dominican tradition. And this is where they came from. Today, the sacristy functions as the church souvenir shop. But in Fra Angelico's time, it served a more lofty function. It was one of the church's most, most holy sites and unexpectedly became a papal chapel during the course of the painter's commission. In 1434, so in the final year of the commission, facing a popular insurrection in Rome, Pope Eugenius IV sought shelter in Florence. By cover of darkness, the Pope disguised himself as a monk and fled the Eternal City by boat. Several weeks later, he and his retinue rode into Florence in the company of only one cardinal, a fact that clearly disappointed contemporary chroniclers whose memories were still filled with lavishly dressed courtiers who had accompanied the triumphal entry of the previous pope, Pope Martin V, over a decade earlier. That occasion in 1418 was by plan rather than necessity, like Eugenius's flight, and the Signoria had spent months transforming the convent of Santa Maria Novella into a residence suitable for Martin and the papal curia including a staircase adorned with Donatello's marzocco, his lion, which was an emblem of the city of Florence. Santa Maria Novella, which you can see here from above, became a city within a city, and its second cloister was rebuilt as effectively the kind of papal Airbnb. So I'll show you here, you've got the church, the main body of the church, then you've got the first cloister, and then you've got this entire second cloister. It's one of the reasons that the city chose this convent as housing, as accommodation for the Pope, because of course he never traveled by himself. He traveled with a retinue of hundreds of people. They had to be fed and looked after and housed, and so it was Santa Maria Novella that actually had the space to do it. Thus they were well prepared when Eugenius arrived with considerably less notice and fewer people. 
When he set out from Santa Maria Novella to consecrate the new Florentine cathedral, Brunelleschi's dome, two years later, he began his procession from the very sacristy of the Dominican church, where he would have seen all of Fra Angelico's reliquaries sparkling like new. The Dominicans ensured that their sacristy represented Florence with all of the honor due to its guests. In a sermon preached at the church on the occasion of the election of the order's master general, Friar Simone da Cascina had extolled the excellence of Santa Maria Novella for four reasons, the second of which was its magnificently adorned sacristy. The friars were additionally proud of the sacristy's treasures because they had been accumulated without recourse to public subsidy, unlike the baptistry or cathedral. The four reliquaries glorified saints' relics probably already contained within the church by rehousing them within magnificent containers decorated by the order's most famous living artist. Fra Angelico's four reliquaries remained within the sacristy for the next 300 years, yet they were subject to a few modifications along the way. Recent research in the Gardner's Conservation Lab revealed how changes in taste transformed both the image and the physical form of the Gardner painting. Our discoveries all began with a trip to our neighbors at the MFA. Thanks to an x-ray that they were able to take, the Gardner's head of conservation, Gianfranco Pocobene, noticed specks of paint that did not correspond with the Gardner's painting composition. So the specks are a little difficult to see, but you see there's a kind of spottiness to the composition down here, quite a bit of it here as well. We couldn't figure out what that was because it didn't show up in the surface of the painting. See, no spots here. Further investigation began to reveal original passages of paint beneath later layers on both the front and the back. The front edges, and so you see one front edge here, and we're looking right there. The front edges concealed the rest of the angel's gown, as you can see here. Excavation of a thick brown overpaint on the reverse revealed several campaigns of decoration beneath. So what we realized was that Fra Angelico had originally covered the back surface of the reliquary with red paint and white speckles to simulate the appearance of porphyry marble. This was a common mode of decoration for small-scale devotional paintings and objects, signaling their importance by soliciting a comparison with the precious stone. And so you see here a, a painting by Duccio with the same kind of porphyry, fictive porphyry on the back. <clears throat> here in the back of our reliquary, so this is on the back of the Gardner painting, um, you can actually see the different campaigns of those layers. So those spots that we saw in the x-ray are the spots that you're seeing here of lead white paint. That's the original layer that Fra Angelico laid down to simulate the effects of porphyry on the back of the painting. At some point, maybe within a century afterwards, it wore off, and so it was repainted with a similar pattern, uh, which has eventually um, been scraped off. And then finally, in the 18th century, they did something completely different. Um, they covered it with this uh, elaborate floral pattern on an ochre ground. This design may have been intended to harmonize the by then out of style Renaissance reliquary with Baroque sacristy furnishings, now lost, but it also reveals that the shape of this painting changed with its coats of new paint. So what you'll notice, of course, is that the corners up here are suddenly missing to this painting. You can see in the back of this photo the missing corners. So this too requires some explanation, and to do so, we have to return to the 15th century and imagine what the reliquary originally looked like. Its original frame remains a mystery, but we can make an informed hypothesis based on contemporary examples. This much smaller example in the MFA preserved its relics in glass-covered apertures, 
we can reasonably assume that the relics in Fra Angelico's were disposed in a similar way, but cut away or taken off with a saw at some point in its history. Whenever this happened, it indicates a moment in which the painting by Fra Angelico was more valued than the relics that it contained. Another relic query here was similarly transformed, and you can see that they did the opposite. Instead of removing the chambers, they just, and this is an x-ray I'm showing you next to it of this painting, they just, they filled them in. So do you see the ghostly kind of shadows here? Those, those are the chambers where the relics were that they filled in um, when they made this one from a reliquary into a painting for a museum. So that's what could have happened with ours, but in fact, they cut them off instead. More dramatically than a new paint job, an art dealer, in collaboration with a painter, reshaped the Dormition and Assumption reliquary to suit the decor of a new kind of room. Sometime between 1808 and 1816, the Reverend John Sanford, an English collector, purchased it in Florence. Whether from a greedy friar at the church or an art dealer acting as intermediary remains unknown. Within two decades, he brought his wife to Florence and settled in a house in the Torrigiani Gardens. The Reverend and Mrs. Sanford became patrons of the sculptor Canova and major collectors of Italian paintings. Like those works, he sent the Fra Angelico back to London, where it became, in 1816, the first painting by this artist to be publicly exhibited in Britain. Sanford then must be recognized as a pioneer, amassing one of the earliest collections of Italian primitives in the UK. Shortly before he left Florence, a painter and a carpenter transformed the Gothic pointed reliquary into a rectangular panel. This procedure was no mean feat. You can see from these two photographs that it required two triangular wooden inserts, mitered, glued, and nailed into the original painting. The artist, so this is probably taking place around the time when Sanford buys the painting, around 1816. So this artist at the time then covers the seam up with gold leaf and finally added this sort of eccentric composition of storm clouds. And I say eccentric because it's kind of a hurricane in heavens kind of a bit strange. So it, you know, it didn't make much sense with the rest of the composition. All of this made the recently restored painting look as good as new. The physical transformation was specific to accommodate its new environment, making the assumption suitable for display in the kinds of picture galleries that proliferated in British country houses. That right there is our assumption. You can see here how the painting fit right into its new home. This damaged black and white photograph, the earliest known photograph of our painting, shows the picture gallery at Corsham Court near Wiltshire, home to Lord Methuen, the painting's owner after Sanford. With its rectangular profile, the Fra Angelico sits to the right above a side table covered with a, covered with a pane of glass. This unusual protection, that is the pane of glass that was put over the, the frame of the painting itself, may also help to explain why the gardener's painting remained in such terrific condition. By the 1890s, the once wealthy Methuen family were looking for ways to make ends meet, and like many British aristocratic collectors, saw their art collection as an easy solution. Lord Methuen's intentions lit a fire under the lead salesman, the appropriately named Otto Gutekunst, at the London-based firm Kolnagi. He contacted Bernard Berenson in 1898 with some good news, and here I'm quoting from his letter to Berenson. We found we had only just been in the nick of time, for Methuen has evidently made up his mind to sell. Christie's have already been approached, but gave nothing away over the Italian pictures. 
Moreover, Methuen would prefer to sell privately, and so we stand a very good chance. We will have the pictures photographed, and you shall have the photographs without a moment's delay. There is, first of all, Fra Angelico, 24 inches by 15, the Assumption of the Virgin, in perfect state and of great beauty. Here is the, oh, that's Gutekunst. Here is the photograph that, that Gutekunst sent to Berenson, who was by then already established at Villa Itati outside of Florence. As you can see, he carefully trimmed off the corners, hoping that the heavy-handed 19th century restoration, the, the hurricane in heaven, wouldn't dissuade Berenson's potential client. We have to remember that Berenson sold his paintings mainly by correspondence to collectors who had never actually seen them in person and worked only with black and white photographs, a considerable challenge for a work whose inherent appeal laid in its brilliant palette of colors. And this was exactly how Gardner bought it by correspondence. Luckily, however, for Angelica was a name well enough known to be coveted by collectors and scarce enough to make one's appearance a major event. Isabella Stewart Gardner's taste for great Renaissance paintings was already common knowledge, so think of the acquisitions she'd already made, like uh, Titian's Rape of Europa or Botticelli's uh, Story of Lucretia. And Berenson and Gutekunst clearly had her in mind from the start. Shortly after his first letter, Gutekunst followed up with Berenson about the price, adding, quote, now you must tell me the maximum price that you think Mrs. G ought to pay, and we will see what we can do for Methuen, unquote. Concealment and intrigue abounded. Methuen didn't trust Colnaghi to give him a good price and continued to negotiate with Christie's. Colnaghi worried that Methuen would ask too much and thus concealed Gardner's identity as the potential client, referring to her only as Our Lady Across the Seas. <laughs> Gardner, for her part, detested Berenson's involvement in the art trade altogether, and thus he sought to conceal the role of both Gutekunst and Colnaghi, the firm as a whole, in the transaction. Just as all seemed to be going to plan, Gardner's husband, Jack, died on the 10th of December, 1898. Gutekunst, always with his mind to business, wrote anxiously to Berenson. And this is quoting from the letter. I don't know whether to be sad or joyful. I always understood that she bought with her own money and that she is very, very rich, and that only in quite exceptional cases did she borrow or get money from her husband. Now she may be more eager and less hampered, but she may, as you fear, travel more and come dangerously into contact with others. <laughs> Very thoughtful letter. The danger was, of course, that Gardner might stop buying through them. Gardner's fortune was, in fact, modest in comparison with the other American plutocrat collectors like Frick or J.P. Morgan, but she bought carefully and kept her financial details deliberately vague. A plea of poverty was often an effective negotiating tactic for keeping prices from skyrocketing beyond her limited means. To add insult to injury, Methuen suddenly got cold feet. Colnaghi was offering him 2,000 pounds, but Methuen heard that Lord Dudley had gotten 10,000 pounds from the Berlin Museum for his own Fra Angelico. So here's a, here's a painting of Lord Dudley's Fra Angelico, uh, excuse me, an image of Lord Dudley's Fra Angelico. Of course, that was a larger painting, and as Gutekunst explained to Methuen, quote, Lord Dudley's picture is smaller and the price we offered and which he accepted was exactly the same per square inch. <laughs> I love the idea of reducing these two paintings to the price per square inch. It's sort of entertaining. 
In addition, Methuen demanded from Colnaghi the name of their buyer and requested that the picture also be assessed by Robert Benson, who you see here in the middle, a rich banker and collector from whom he presumably hoped for a better offer. Colnaghi stalled, claiming that the sale was complete, and pretended that the picture was already sold to an anonymous collector. If Methuen absolutely insisted on seeing it, Gutekunst planned a little subterfuge. He intended to hang it in a friend's house in London and thus keep the identity of Our Lady across the seas a close secret. Luckily, Lord Methuen caved before any of this charade had to go into action. On the 27th of January, 1899, Gutekunst reported, quote, Today I am able to give you the cheerful news that after a most prolonged and disagreeable struggle with Lord Methuen and conferences with all of our lawyers, we are at last victorious, unquote. Kolnagi sent a check for 2,100 pounds, as promised to Lord Methuen, included the name of the ostensible buyer, a certain Monsieur Gretor. By leaving Methuen with the name of an anonymous intermediary, this, this Gretor character, they managed to preserve the secrecy of Gardner's identity and discourage Methuen from demanding any more money. The rest was up to Berenson. The young connoisseur redoubled his efforts with Gardner and wrote without delay. Ever since I have been buying for you, he wrote, I have been looking out for a Filippo Lippi, a Filipino, and a Fra Angelico. But the most precious and greatest of these masters is, of course, Fra Angelico, and at last I have my hook in a work by this angel, which I hope to land safely. The photograph is far from satisfactory, so he sent her a black and white photograph, and yet it will show you that the picture in question is one of the loveliest ever painted. All that deep and sweet sentiment and great qualities of art can do to make a picture gracious and beautiful has been done here. And how could she resist? Within days, Gardner agreed to pay 4,000 pounds, representing a 200% markup, and yet still a good deal. A good deal because the Dormition and Assumption of the Virgin became the first Fra Angelico painting in America and set a new standard that other museums were quick to follow, driving prices into the stratosphere. Gardner's acquisition of Fra Angelico initiated both local and national trends. Within two decades, both the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and the Harvard Art Museums in Cambridge had their own. Private collectors followed in Gardner's footsteps as well. John G. Johnson, Benjamin Altman, and Henry Goldman all acquired works that eventually went to major museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1909, the Philadelphia Museum a few years later, and finally the National Gallery of Art in Washington through the generosity of Samuel Cress. Before shipping Gardner's pioneering acquisition to Boston, Colnaghi had the picture reframed. The frame maker based his neo-Gothic replacement, and so this is a, a brand new frame here that Colnaghi had made, the replacement on an early Florentine example in the National Gallery. So this was the model most likely for it. It's a much, much larger painting than this one, but they've reduced it in size. <clears throat> the advantages of the new model were twofold. First, it covered the unsightly storm clouds in the upper corners. And second, it returned the painting to a Gothic profile, suggesting also a little bit of a change in taste, that is to say, the desire to see Fra Angelico as a late Gothic or early Renaissance painter. Fittingly, Isabella installed this painting in the early Italian room, on a wall next to the window where its dynamic composition and brilliant colors continue to surprise and enchant visitors today. Fra Angelico's reinvention for the Victorian era shines through in the frames of all four reliquaries, a testament to 19th century tastes and to the esteem in which this painter was held even then. Reunited for the first time at the Gardner, you can see how Fra Angelico's works in general and this set of sparkling Marian stories in particular became such appealing targets to collectors, transforming the painter's popular image as well as being shaped by it. 
Yet at the same time, you can share the experience that Pope Eugenius would have enjoyed when he walked into the sacristy in Santa Maria Novella to find these reliquaries commanding the altar. For there, standing in the middle of the room, were four tiny glimpses of heaven, their colors lighting up the space. Thank you.